So on that, we are going to jump into a series this morning. Uh, I'm calling it No Place Like Home. Um, I don't know why every time I get this stool, it's like, you know, I'm really short, and I'm not that short. I don't know if the ushers are playing a joke on me when they bring it up. Uh, <clears throat> I guess it's better than it falling down on me. Um, yeah, so um, no place like home. Uh, when I graduated from Bible college years and years ago, I won't give you the exact year now because that makes me old, but I remember graduating and I t- got my first job after college, and I'm from Pennsylvania, went to Bible college in Rhode Island, and then was moving to a church in Massachusetts, and I remember the weekend I moved up, there was all of this excitement, all of this anticipation. I couldn't wait to get there and start, and I move into my apartment. Uh, It was a small apartment in Arlington, Massachusetts, if you know where that is, and I'm not lying. It wasn't much bigger than Brian's drum booth. Uh, It it could fit a bed and a small table, and there was a little bathroom, and it was like below grade, so like I could crawl out my window onto solid ground. It was, and I had to do that many times because I always locked my keys in, but I remember... (laughs) I remember my first week, my first night in that apartment, I piled all my stuff in the room, and there's just a pile of, like, a mattress and clothes and, you know, all the assortment of stuff you have from Bible college, just right in the middle of the floor. And I sat there, and all the excitement began to wane. And I had this sinking, like, horrible feeling on the inside. Have you ever felt that way before, that, that homesickness? The first thing I did was pull out my cell phone. There, it was an old Nokia. That'll give you a little idea of how old I am. Pulled out my old Nokia, and I called my mom right away and just broke. Like, I was excited about the future, but also scared about the future. There was this pit in me. Maybe you had a similar situation. Maybe not. Maybe your situation was a little like this. Anybody ever go to summer camp? I didn't go to summer camp much, but when I became a youth pastor, I went to summer camp a lot with our kids. And as a camp counselor, it was exciting, right? You would show up, and everybody, there was all this anticipation for the next few days, and parents were bringing kids and dropping them off, and, you know, we would get our rosters for who's in our group, and we'd be bringing them to their rooms and lugging luggage up to the rooms, and I don't know why, but every mom was obsessed with making their kid's bed, and it's like, their kid is not making their bed. Don't worry about it. Just throw the sheets on. But they wanted to make the beds for the kids, and the kids would get excited, and then we'd start some evening activities, and typically we would, uh, you know, there'd be fun activities, something to get everyone excited. We'd have a meal, and then there'd be a devotional, and then Sure enough, when you're on your way to the devotional, the kids aren't, aren't as, they don't feel as excited. They don't look as excited. They're not walking as tall with their chest out. Their shoulders are kind of slumped and everyone feels a little heavy. And then the devotion would end and you'd go back into your, your dorm or your room that cabin that night. And, and as you're putting everyone to sleep and you're laying in and all the lights go off and you just begin to hear some sniffles. Maybe the sniffles turn into crying. and Homesickness begins to set in. And, and it's hard, and, and, you know, you walk over, and you try to encourage them, like, hey, it's going to be okay, like, we're, we're going to get through this, look at all the stuff we're going to do tomorrow, camp's so much fun, and, and, you know, they immediate response is, I miss my mom, no one ever says they miss their dad, oh, I miss my mom, and I, I know, I know, and then sometimes you want to say, I've met your mom, really, what, I don't know what you're missing, I'm kidding, you don't say those kind of things when you're a camp counselor, met your mom, I get it, she's so sweet, it's awesome, camp's going to be great, but there's this, this, this turning, this this homesickness, and, and as much fun as we're going to have that week, all the anticipation of what's to come, we can't see it because there's this, this sinking kind of homesick feeling. I don't know about you, but the last few years have made me feel a little homesick. Like when I think about, about what we've been through last year, and then, you know, we were really hoping 2021 would be different and didn't seem to be much different. There's this, this homesickness in me. Like I just want things 
to be different. I, I want things to feel different. I, w- I want to look forward to it. But, but the, the truth is, as we're kind of looking at, at, at what's around us, it didn't feel that way, right? We went through what, what was a, a, a really a disaster of a year that was wrapped up in a, you know, a dump fire and a train wreck and then, you know, one for the history books. And we had a viral epidemic and then we had, you know, civil unrest with racial tensions building and, and all of these things continued to build and to build and to build. And then, of course, last year we had to have an, an election in 2020. Like, that wasn't bad enough. It's almost like, like all of the political unrest and all the political strife just was, was like the cap on last year. It's kind of like the political unrest looked over at the Bible epidemic and said, hey, you think you're good? Hold my beer. Watch this. You haven't seen nothing yet. <laughs> and then it just unleashed. And then you're coming out of 2020 into 2021, and you're just hoping, right? It's going to get better. Right around the corner, it's got to get better. And it didn't feel much better. We were hoping for, for, for things to look better. And then, then we get a vaccine, and then it's like, hold up, you don't want a vaccine? And then there's, there's masks, and should we mask, or, or shouldn't we mask? And, and all of this strife continues to build, and racial tensions continue to build. And it was like, I thought things were going to get better. You see, what's become so painfully obvious to me is when I look at our world, when I look at the the things that people are experiencing, and and beyond just what we see in in our government and beyond what we see with the epidemic, people are are suffering. People have lost jobs. The the economy has imploded. I talked to a pastor yesterday who said he's seen more cancer cases in the last few months of his ministry than he's seen in his whole life, and he's been doing ministry for like 40 years. I've talked to pastors who have done more funerals in the last few months than they've done their entire career as a minister. I don't know about you, but when I look at the world, there's this resounding thought that things are just not okay. They're just not okay. It it, it wasn't just, you know, the pandemic and coronavirus or a 2020 election. Things just aren't okay. And that's a little depressing when we think about it, isn't it? You ever seen the movie Wizard of Oz? I grew up watching Wizard of Oz. Not when it was created, because that would make me, like, really old. And I'm not really old. I'm just kind of old. But I grew up watching Wizard of Oz. It's this really kind of interesting movie, isn't it? It's, it's about this young girl, Dorothy, if you don't know. Spoiler alert. Uh, I'm going to give the whole movie away in just a few minutes. So, uh, It's about this girl, Dorothy, who <clears throat> uh, kind of wakes up in this, this magical foreign land, and she's trying to get home. And she, you know, Her house crashes on a witch, but it tends to, turns out to be a good thing because then she gets these really cool red shoes, and she walks down a yellow road and meets these amazing people. And the whole point of the story is to try to get Dorothy home. She just has to get home. So she makes her way to the wizard, and she thinks, sure enough, if I get to the wizard, everything will be okay. If I can just get there, everything's going to work out. And then she gets there, and here's the spoiler. She realizes the wizard can't do a thing. There was no hope there. See, what was really interesting is that what Dorothy had the entire time is exactly what she needed, those little ruby red slippers where she could just click her heels and say the famous line, right? There's no place like home. Can you say that with me? There's no place like home. She taps her heels. She goes back. You know, if if you're a little bit of a movie buff, you watch that and you maybe have the same feeling I do. Like, does she really mean that? Because the whole movie started with her actually running away from home. Anybody pick up on that? I mean, literally. She's in Oz because she ran away from home and then this tornado hits and, you know, she, she gets hit on the head and has this weird dream about a weird land. She was trying to run away. Home wasn't that good. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? But then she gets to a place she's unfamiliar with, and it's like, oh, but there was no place like that. That's kind of how we feel. I I, I know that I couldn't actually walk in those shoes, because, ladies, I don't know how you walk in shoes like that. But if I could actually put those shoes on and click the heels and say there's no place like home, or or say there's no place, I wonder how I would fill it in. I I wonder how I would fill in this blank. There's no place like 
what would you say? 2019. There was no place like 2019 because we kind of romanticized the past. But really, if we're being honest, 2019 may have had some good things, but it, it sure enough had some bad things too. I don't know, for me, it would be like 1998. Year I graduated high school, great year, loved the music. Life looked so full of hope and meaning. I was excited about my future. But to be completely honest, 20, or rather, 1998 had trials of its own. How would you answer? There's no place like fill in that blank. Where would we go? What looks better? You see, what's interesting is we're in difficult times, but there's always been difficult times. And whenever we're in them, we always want something else, don't we? We always want, well, maybe if I just went back to what it was like before. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go back to 2019 and relive 2020 and 2021 again. Like, not the answer. But maybe there's a better way to be asking this question. Maybe the question we need to ask, it looks a little bit more like this. When is it actually going to get better? When is it going to get better? In 2020, our thoughts were, when we get a vaccine, it's going to be better. And then some people got a vaccine and some people don't get a vaccine. I don't really care where you fall on that issue, but it didn't make things better like we hoped it would. Maybe when the economy gets better and people start getting jobs again. Maybe when every issue, it doesn't become a political issue that then gets weaponized and attacks us. Maybe when there's just no more division, things will get better. Maybe when there's no more fighting, when there's no more talking. Maybe when there's no more crying, there's no more lying, there's no more death or pain, there's no more mourning or crying. Maybe when all those things kind of go away, it will eventually get better. But we know that's not going to happen. We live in a world that's full of those things. So when we really think of this, it's, I mean, and I, I can see it on your faces. It's like, Jim, why did I come this morning? You're just depressing me. It's depressing. It's depressing to think about when it'll get better and then to realize it, it might not always get better. I didn't talk about a guy named Paul. You've heard of the Apostle Paul before. If you've been here for any period of time, we've, I love Paul. We talk about Paul a lot. The Apostle Paul, if you've, if you've read any of the New Testament, you've most assuredly bumped into some of his letters. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He was this this incredible character in, in history, really, in biblical history. He, he started off as somebody who hated Jesus and hated Christianity. He made it his goal to, to, to actually get rid of Christianity. He had papers from you know, the religious elite, the Jewish leaders, to go and stamp out Christianity, and he did. He would travel around the known world, and he would find Christians, and he would arrest them and persecute them, and in some cases, execute them. And then on one of his journeys, he bumps into Jesus and has a personal encounter, and, and it changes him forever. I mean, of course, it would, it would change you, wouldn't it? It would change me. He met Jesus, and it changed him. And instead of being a Christian hater, he becomes this Christian church planner. And he travels around the Mediterranean Rim, and he's, he starts planting these churches. He starts talking, really, about what Jesus did to him. And he starts telling the stories, and people gather from everywhere. And he, he would start a church, then he'd move on, and he'd go start another church. And he'd continue the path of, of planting churches. And then he would write letters every time he would travel. He'd write letters to his friends back in these other churches, and that's what makes up the most, of the, most of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul lived through some incredibly excruciating times. As a matter of fact, when I read through his letters, if I, if I knew Paul, my guess is somewhere in the, in the first century, Paul made a statement like this. Man, 59 AD was like the worst. 
right? It, it was like, it, it was the worst. Like, they hated Christians. The people I persecuted, I'm not trying to save. Like, good luck with that. They hate me. I killed their mom. Like, they, they don't want me around. And now the government's after me, and, and they're killing people, and there's no food, and Jesus left. Like, it's just the worst. And to make matters worse, now there's a warrant out for his arrest. The majority, I don't know if you realize this, the majority of those letters Paul wrote, he wrote while he was in prison on house arrest. One of these letters he writes to a church he started in Rome. That's what we're going to look at this morning. <clears throat> we call it, we're really creative with our titles, we call it Romans. <clears throat> Paul writes this letter while in prison to the people in Rome who started a church, and he starts writing about how we face these, these, these kind of decision when you look out into the world and it just seems like, like everything's wrong and everything's broken and nothing's working. And what do we do with that? Paul, a man who, who experienced that in his own right, sitting in prison, knowing what's ahead of him, knowing that most assuredly he would be executed, and he was, that they would execute him because of his faith, and he would, his faith, and he would refuse to recant his faith because he had seen too much and he had experienced too much. Personally, he witnessed too much. He knew what it was like to stare in the face of what seemed like things are just not okay. But there's a way through. In Romans, Paul writes this. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's a powerful statement. I love that line, but, but there's another translation I want to look at this morning. A guy named Eugene Peterson, he was a, a pastor. He wrote a, a kind of a version of the Bible, a translation. We really call it a transliteration. He would take these old Greek terms or Greek phrases and he would modernize them into modern terms. And he, he, what he writes, or he kind of explains how Paul writes, I think it's, it's really beautiful. So we're going to look at what he writes. This is called the message version. He says it this way. He says, I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. That's beautiful. But if we're honest and we, we look at that, you probably ask the same question I do. Like, Paul, where do you get off saying that? How do you say that? Like, I, I, I am, I'm beyond you in years. I know what's ahead of you. I know what's to come. There's imprisonment and, and, and there's, there's execution for your faith. Like, things don't get better for you. How do you say that? How do you look at the world and say, but things are going to get better, when in reality, they might not get better? Paul goes on. He says, the created, the created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. I love how that's worded. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. It's like it's everything around us is building with anticipation for what's about to come. All of creation, all the world is just bubbling up to the surface with this anticipation. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. And listen to how he kind of describes this. God, it's like he's, he's reigning in creation. God is, is reigning it in until both creation and the creatures, that's you, that's me, that's, that's all of us, are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, like right now, and when Paul wrote this, like right then and every time in between Paul and us, meanwhile, right now, today, the joyful anticipation deepens. I love that Paul went, went back to this idea of this creation terminology, of, of creation and creatures. He's, he's hearkening back to something that all Jewish people knew and, and really that, that all of us knew, that, that, that creation began somewhere, that we were all, that it all came from something. We're going to go back and we're going to look at kind of like in the beginning, the creation side of things. But before we jump back to Genesis and we read, I just want to give a, a little 
kind of a warning or, or just a, something to think about. Every time we go back to, to Genesis and we open the scriptures, I find that people are, are divided. We fall on one side or the other. Either it's, it's, it's all literal or it's all figurative. And, and the truth is, while those arguments on both sides are really interesting and there's a lot there, the, the, the point of the story is the moral of the story. And the moral of the story doesn't change. Wherever you find yourself, whether you believe it's all figurative or it's all literal or some kind of blending of the two, the moral of the story never changes. And the moral of the story is what's beautiful, and that's what Paul's going back to. He goes back to a verse we're all familiar with. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was good. It was like really, really good. Have you ever been to a perfect place? I know none of you have because, you know, we live here and, and it's broken. But have you ever been to like a place that you would think is, like, man, that's just perfect? I have. I remember the first, uh, I went to Maui on a mission trip. Every time I say that, I got to give like a, a little tagline. Like, I know, Maui on a mission trip. It was amazing and it was awesome. Maui on a mission trip. And I remember coming to a beach. It, it was this, this white stretch of in this little town uh, called Paella. And you walk out onto the beach and it is just the most spectacular beach I've ever seen in my life. I hit it the first time and I thought, that's, par- that's perfect. That's paradise. That must be what heaven looks like. And it was good, but it wasn't that good. I remember the week I married my wife. We went on a honeymoon. We flew out of Boston, and we were flying to Cancun. And <clears throat> I'd been out of the country before, but never to a place like this. We landed in Cancun and drove to the resort, and we get out, and we didn't have our luggage because they lost our luggage. So we're in sweatsuits from Boston in hot Mexican weather, and we're standing in, like, the entryway to the hotel. And if you've ever been in any of these resorts, it's, like, all open. They want you to walk in, and they just want you to see past everything to what's out there. And I, I walked out, and it was just beautiful beautiful beach and pools and unlimited food, and everybody's happier there. And I thought to myself, this is perfect. I mean, it really wasn't perfect, but it was, it was like the closest I felt to perfect. And it was good. But it wasn't this good. As a matter of fact, God c- continues the creation story. He kind of creates everything. And then he looks back on it all, and he has some pretty awesome remarks about it. At the end of this chapter, God has created everything, and now he looks back. He saw all that he had made, right? The, the, the water and the land and the mountains and the, the, the skies with the stars and the universe and all of the creatures, the, the amazing things that, that just fascinate us and the things that gross us out. And then he made us, and he looked at all of it, everything he made, and he said, it is very good. Not like, eh, it's good, I did okay, but I, you know, I, I changed him a little bit. He's a little, I, I, no, no, it was like, it's good. It is very, it is like perfect. And then something happens and everything goes downhill. Then we get involved and we screw everything up. I mean, that's how the story goes. I'm not, I'm not making it up. We get involved. God makes man and woman and he puts them in the garden, this, this beautiful paradise. And he says, you can do anything you want. Just don't eat from one tree. From this one tree in, in, in the garden. Don't eat from that thing. Do everything else and you're good. And I know as a kid, maybe you felt this way. I read this story and I'm like, what a bunch of morons. You had one rule. All you parents, you say that all the time. I say it to my kids. You had one rule. Not to hurt each other. You had one rule. Why can't you do that? And then I get older. You know what I realize? It's because none of us can do that. We all break one rule. We set one rule for ourselves and we break it. We start the year off. I'm going to get in shape. And then March hits and it's like, yep, cancel my gym membership. I'm done. It's like we had one rule. They had one rule. And they broke one rule. 
and everything changed. See, there's something in us, and it's in human nature where we want to trust ourselves more than we're willing to trust God. Ah, God, I, I think you might be in control, but, but I think I can be in better control, even though we literally have no control. And we fight for that from God, and everything changes, and everything begins to fall apart. And what was perfect and what was paradise becomes broken. The author of Genesis says it this way. <clears throat> when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, it was good for food, it was good to eat, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You see, in most of those drawings of this encounter, it's like there's the tree with some weird-looking serpent and Eve and Adam's nowhere to be found. But the truth is, Adam's right there. And when I read the story, this is how I kind of see it going down. Uh, I'm not going to eat it. You go first. And he's like, well, it looks good to me. I'll try it. I'm not scared. She tries it, and she takes a bite, and nothing happens, or at least so she thinks. And Adam said, well, she didn't drop dead. <laughs> I guess I'll have some too. Really manly man, right? He takes a bite, and everything changes. Nothing stays the same. Everything breaks. We call that sin. It's anything that's working against what God is working for. And that worked against God. Because all that God wanted when he made creation, all of this was for us. Because he wanted a trust relationship with us. And in that moment, they broke it. They said, no, I trust me, God, more than I trust you. And then their eyes were opened. Not three chapters later. In perfection. Literally, it was all good. They broke it. And the eyes of both of them were open. You see, they broke it. But we've been breaking it ever since. They, they broke what was good. But the truth is, we continue to break it every single day, don't we? That's why the world is the way it is. That's why everything is the way it is. That's, that, that's why relationships continue to fall apart. It's, it's why friendships kind of turn backwards and why some friends stab each other in the back. It's why you know, spouses will, will make uh, statements to each other, vows to each other, and then along the line somewhere, they break them. It's why our, our kids are broken. And we might laugh at that as parents and, and, and joke, but the truth is we know they are because we're broken. And broken things tend to create broken things. That's why companies are broken, and churches are broken, and governments are broken, because they're created and led by broken things. That's why friends turn on each other. That's why marriages fall apart and end in divorce. It's why companies promise promotions and then begin laying people off. It's brokenness. Bro brokenness is why leaders... <clears throat> lead selfishly. Brokenness is why parents divorce. Brokenness is why kids rebel. It, it's all because it's broken. Brokenness is why coworkers can't be trusted. And it's how, I, how can I get ahead at your expense? It's because it's broken. Because we broke perfection. We've been breaking it ever since. 
I'm going to jump back to Paul in a moment to see how, how Paul says after he talks about this creation thing. But this is why we experience what we experience. This is why we have pandemics and why we have civil unrest and why government can't seem to lead. And we keep putting our, our, our trust there. And God's saying, but you're trusting in something that's broken and it's only going to guarantee a broken outcome. We look back to Paul, who, who experienced the brokenness and who saw the brokenness. He literally was writing to people who experienced the brokenness. You feel alone, and, and your, your leaders betray you, and, and, and the government literally wants to kill you. And in the midst of all that, he guarantees good times ahead. Paul continues. He goes on in Romans, and he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning. It's been groaning, it's been, it's been yearning, it's been longing. There's this, this thing inside of all creation that just longs for something more. It's been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. He uses this kind of graphic image to, 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 to connect to us this, this idea of how something so beautiful could come out of something so painful. How something so, so amazing can come from, from maybe the most painful moment in a person's life. He goes on. Not only so, but we ourselves, creation, Paul, the people he was writing to, you, me, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who, who God breathed life into, the, 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 the apex of creation, the thing that God was most proud of. He called us his masterpiece. We are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We're yearning for something more. We're longing for something more because we were made for something more. Paul finishes with this. For, for in this hope, we were saved. We're eagerly anticipating something better than what we have here. It's, it's why we feel homesick. Because we were made for something more than what we're experiencing here. And, and we, deep down somewhere in our conscience, in our soul, in our gut, whatever you want to call it, we, we feel it. We know it. It's, it. it's not right. Things are broken. It shouldn't be this way. It's because you weren't made for this. You were made for something better. And when we put our hope in that something better... We have hope, we have faith to believe that we are adopted, that we are brought in to the family of God through our faith in Jesus, and we receive salvation and eternal life. Paul said, that's, that's the hope. That's the good that's ahead of the bad that we experience here. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope, he goes on, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. I, he's so smart. I love how Paul says this. For who hopes for what they already have? Who hopes for what they already have? And if we're being completely honest, do you know what we would all say? I do. I mean, I really, I guess I do. That's kind of what we spend our whole life doing, isn't it? We, as broken things, we try to spend our whole life unbreaking broken things. And it doesn't seem to work. It's why there are so many self-help books out there to try to fix what's broken. And that's what we do. We spend our whole life trying to fix what's broken, but it never seems, it never seems to come together. It never seems to work. The puzzle pieces don't fit in correctly. We, we kind of hope that, that what we have will bring us what we don't have. Have you ever noticed that? We, we hope that what we have or, or what we can get here will bring us what we actually don't have, that it'll somehow save us, that our marriage will somehow make us happy, and then we get a marriage and we're not happy. And then you know what we say? And I hear it all the time. 
we'll have kids because kids will fix everything. And then we're not happy at our jobs, so we switch companies and we find different jobs and, 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 and everything we do to fix the broken doesn't fix the broken. But we're doing exactly what Paul said. We're hoping what we already have. He said, that's not how it works. Who does that? It doesn't work that way. And you can try, and the truth is, I'm guessing a lot of you have tried. How's it going? Have you fixed the broken? Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And what don't we have yet? Lasting peace? Ongoing goodness? Perfection? See, in our life, we'll experience moments of this. There's moments of peace, and there's, there's moments of goodness, and there's moments where, you know, you walk through that resort, and you look out, and it's like, perfect. But they never last. It decays, and it dies, because that's what sin does. It destroys, and it kills everything. And the brokenness continues to erode. It's the reason why we get angry. And some of you don't want to hear that. It's the reason why you get frustrated. That makes you maybe a little uncomfortable. It's the reason why our bosses do what they do and why they say what they say. It's why spouses break vows. It's the reason why people break up. It's the reason why people can't seem to ever get along. Have you noticed that? I mean, now more than ever in my life, I feel like we can't, like, why can't we just get along? Nobody can get along. We can't even line up. We can't even agree to agree on the same things. There's a reason for that. It's because it's broken. And you weren't meant for brokenness. It's because in the middle of this broken state that we're all living in, you're homesick for heaven. You're you're homesick for a place where it isn't broken, for, for the creation that God meant for you to have, where everything was perfect and everything felt right and everything was the way it should be. You're homesick for what you were meant for, for what you were created for. You're homesick for, for as the Apostle Paul, or the, rather the Apostle John would describe in his vision in Revelation. He would say it like this. You're homesick for a place where God will wipe every tear from their eyes, for, or, where there will be no more death, and there will be no more mourning, and there will be no more crying, and there will be no more pain. And you can just continue that on. There'll be no more sickness and there'll be no more cancer and there'll be no more strife and there'll be no more fighting for a place where where, where there is is no more unhappiness. Where the old order of things, like what we're living in now, the human way, the human condition, the sin, the brokenness, where the old order of things has completely passed away. You're homesick for that because that's what you were created for. You're homesick, but not without hope. Even though the world is broken, and we know it is, and we keep hoping it's going to get better, but sometimes, are we just kidding ourselves? It just seems to get worse and worse. But you're not without hope. Because like Paul said, I know what God has in store for me. I know what's ahead. At the end of all this, I know what's awaiting me. And it's better than this brokenness that we're living in. We have hope for heaven. 
but we don't have heaven yet. So in the meantime, what do we have? We have something. Let's go back to that phrase. There's no place like what for you? I'm going to use Paul's word. There's no place like hope. Hope is that like powerful human emotion. Maybe the most powerful. It, it keeps us going. It, it keeps us looking forward when things around us begin to fall apart. It, it, it's why in the midst of tragedy, you can see glimmers of goodness and glimmers of hope because th th there's hope that it will get better and it will go on. And in the meantime, while we're waiting for that, th that good thing that's created for us, for heaven, Paul said you can have hope. You can have hope in God and you can have hope in Jesus. You can have hope that God loved you so much that he sent his son to this world so that you would have that trust relationship with him once again. And you'd be adopted into his family. Where everything in your life, your emotions, your will, your mind, are fully redeemed. The world may not look bright all the time, but there's hope. Let's go back to that illustration of summer camp. If you've been to camp before, you know how the story continues cry, they get worked up, and you try to calm them down, and sometimes you can, but sometimes it doesn't. And then you, you, know, you get up in the middle of the night, and you, you take the child and, or the teenager, whoever it is, and maybe it's a, you know, one of the counselors, it's a young adult. You walk them out of the dorm, out of the cabin, up to the camp office. They call their parents, and something changes when they talk to their parents. Mom, I'm homesick. Yeah, I, I know, I know. I need you to come pick me up. Do you know, you know what happens the majority of the time there? Parents don't come pick their kids up. So I, I, I give it a few more days. Just, just a few more days. Let's see how it goes. And if, if it's not good in a few more days, I'll come get you. And almost all those conversations end that way. But something has changed in the child. They walk away and, and they walk a little taller and they're no longer slumped over and, and, and sad and dejected. Their shoulders are back and they're happy. Do you know why? Because they were given some hope because they experienced hope in their life. It's going to be okay. It's going to get better. I'll be there in a few days. I can make it a few days. I can do that. Very few conversations end with parents coming to pick their kids up from camp. Most kids just needed a little hope. And that little hope went a long way. And this morning, if you're here and you're a Jesus follower, I want you to know that hope is yours. You've put your faith in Jesus. You've, you've trusted in him, and, and, and that trust relationship with God is back in place. You have hope. You have hope for your future. Heaven is what is, what is awaiting you. You put your faith in him so you have salvation, and, and eternal life in heaven is what's before you, and that is the hope for you. That is the hope that in the midst of, of, when, of times like what we've just went through the last two years, and let's be honest, it, this year might get a little better, but in years to come, it's going to get bad again. It always does. History repeats itself over and over. And in those moments where it feels like it's down and it feels like, like the world has overwhelmed you and the, you know, the guy who's standing on stage that you trust so much comes forward and says, hey, I'm resigning, good luck. Like, in moments like that, where it feels like there's no hope, you have hope. And his name is Jesus. And you need to be reminded of that. It might get hard. And it might feel uncomfortable. Let's be honest. It didn't change a lot for Paul. He stayed in prison. He was executed. And his life ended. But he never lost hope because his hope wasn't in this life. It wasn't in this brokenness. It was in the life that's to come. 
If you're a Jesus follower, I hope you come back next week because next week we're going to talk about well, why can't we keep our eyes on that? Why do we keep getting distracted and look at everything that's around us? And I think that's going to be good and it'll help you. So come back next week. But if you're not a Jesus follower, I want you to know that hope is for you. Jesus died for you. And you may be walking through life with this overwhelming feeling of brokenness. And for years, you've never been able to say it that way. You didn't use those words, but things just didn't seem okay in the world and in your life. That hope is yours. You don't have to pay anything to get it. You don't have to sign a membership card to be a part of a church to have it. You said it's yours. There's this, this great story. If you're not a Jesus follower, I think you'll, you, you should like this story. There's a guy named Thomas. He was one of the guys who kind of walked around and followed Jesus. His name's Doubting Thomas, right? He, he's the guy who always kind of doubted. He never really believed. He spent all this time with Jesus, years and years, and every time Jesus would say or do doing something, he's the guy in the side like, did he really do that? Like, did he really say? Like, he, he's that guy. So if you don't, you're not a Jesus follower, you'd like Doubting Thomas. In one of these occasions, Jesus is talking about the hope that's to come, about what's ahead of them. And Thomas and some guys are a part of this discussion. In John's gospel, the story goes down like this. Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, why would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? I'm preparing a place for you, a room for you, a house for you, in my father's kingdom in heaven. And I go there to prepare a place for you. And then I will come back and I will take you to be with me. The church refers to that as Jesus' second coming, that eventually he will come back and he'll take us to be with him. That you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And he says this, and Thomas, I think, probably responded like a lot of us would. And I'm a pastor. I'm a Jesus follower. But I think I would respond in the same way Thomas did. Jesus, I've walked with you. I talked to you. I see you do amazing things. Like, all, all that's amazing. This makes no sense. Like, I look at you, and the truth is, I, 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 there's something different about you that I don't have. There's peace in the midst of, of turmoil. Like literally, the government and the church, they're after you for blood, but you have peace. I don't know everything about you, but I want that peace. You have goodness. You look at the people who are trying to hurt you and accuse you and kill you with kindness and love. Jesus, I don't know that I trust you, but I want that. There's hope and there's optimism, even in the face of overwhelming odds. Jesus, I'm not sure I buy into everything, but I want part of that. So you say, there's a place you know where I'm going. I don't think I do. So Thomas responds like we would respond. He says, Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Thomas doesn't have any idea how to get there. He spent all this time with Jesus, and Jesus looks at Thomas, and he responds with such kindness and love. He doesn't give him a map. He doesn't give him a GPS. It's not like, hey, go to this address. He looks at Thomas with a sincere heart, and he says, Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The hope that you're longing for, the hope that you're yearning for, it's found in him. The truth is, you've tried to fix it. You've tried to fix it by yourself. You've tried with relationships and with kids or jobs or career changes. You've tried it with the things you've purchased or vacations. You've tried to fix it. You've tried to create that happiness that will last. But it doesn't last, does it? Maybe you've tried it with other things, substances, things that promise 
a good outcome, but never seem to follow through on that promise. You've tried to fix it. How's it going for you? What if Jesus was actually right? What if Jesus was actually the Son of God? I mean, I know we can't go back 2,000 years and verify all the things that Jesus did and said, but what if, what if he was actually right? What if there is a way to ultimate peace? What if there is a way to perfection? What if he's the way? Would you trust him? Would you believe? See, Jesus said, that's, that's all you have to do. Believe in me. And I'll be the hope for your life. What if it were actually possible to have peace? What if it were actually possible to have joy? What if it were actually possible to go through everything we've gone through in the last two years and have hope and optimism and to face all of those difficulties with a smile saying, I know it's bad, but someday it's going to get better. I wasn't made for this. Paul believed it. I believe it. Do you? You know what else I believe? I believe there's no place like hope. Because there is no person like Jesus. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for the great hope we have in Jesus. God, that we can trust and we can believe and we can have faith, Lord. And, and, and we may not know all of life's outcomes, God. We may not know what's coming next. But that doesn't matter. We have Jesus and we have hope. So, Father, for all of us who have put our hope in him this morning, I pray that you would you'd refresh that hope in us, God, that, that we can endure whatever's before us because we weren't made for this. Our home is in heaven, and we anticipate that, and we can't wait for that. But while we're here, we'll have hope. Father, and for those of us who, who maybe have been on, on the edge, and we're not really sure, we're, we're skeptical, God, we still doubt. God, I pray we, that you would give them the courage to take that step and say, if he's right, I want that. I want that hope, I want that peace, I want that joy. God, and would you give them the courage to take the step to do that? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.